0: Hi, this is Carol Steves, and you're listening to Reality Ranch Podcast. Today is April 17th, 2020, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, the coronavirus and information that. We have received from uh, Billy Meyer and the Playaren, and also I have an interview with Daniel Cooper, as promised last week, about his new book. So first I'm going to start off with the information about the coronavirus. Many of you listening to this um, have probably read quite a bit about this uh, rapidly spreading virus that originated in the Hubei province of China, of uh, in Wuhan, China. And according to the information that we've received uh, from Billy and the Pleorin, this virus um, was created in a lab. It's a bioweapon. And there are other scientists out there who are have looked at this, uh, sequenced this virus, and are confirming this fact that several things were spliced together to make this virus. I'm not gonna go into that today, but what I do wanna talk about, um, about the wearing of the the masks for protection, because there's been a, a lot of confusion about the wearing of masks, including confusion on my part, trying to parse through everything, And understand um, what is safe and what isn't uh, when it comes to protecting ourselves from contracting this very serious virus that isn't just like catching the flu or a cold, uh, which many people erroneously have been saying on social media. This is a virus that has mutated and it's continuing to mutate, it um, not only attacks the lungs, it can attack your other vital organs. It looks like people can become reinfected by this virus, and that once you get it, um, it stays in your system, hence the, the ability to be reinfected. And um, it can also, it looks like cause you to a person to be more susceptible to other illnesses and may even shorten our lifespans. Uh, So pretty serious virus. And at first the, the government, the U S government was telling us not to wear masks, that they were useless. They were only for the healthcare providers, which that didn't make any sense to me. And um, I was, at that time, nothing had come out about the virus from the player, and so I was waiting and watching for something to come out. I was doing my own research. I could tell it was very serious, and um, I wanted to understand what I needed to do. I saw what they were doing in China with the lockdowns, and as early as um, the 1st of February, I understood that that was going to be coming here. I didn't know to what measure um, I, I that was going to happen. I saw videos where they were welding people into their homes, and that was pretty extreme. Uh, I was hoping that wasn't going to be the case here. I, I kind of had a feeling it wouldn't be, um, but what I didn't realize is the measures that would be taken wouldn't be enough. They aren't enough. And now they're talking about opening our country back up early, before they really have this under control because they're worried about the economy. And so um, I'd like to read an excerpt from um, A Contact. Before I read The Contact, um, I thought I'd share something with you that's kind of interesting. So I'm someone who's very interested in dreams and And I know that our dreams are from our subconscious often, and also there are different kinds of dreams. And so I often tell myself to dream things that I need to know about. The problem is I don't often know what the dreams mean until later on when I have them. So, and, and that's the case with this dream that I'm going to share with you that I had, an, I think it was in November, because I think it was around Thanksgiving time here in the U.S. And in the dream, I was um, standing in my front yard, and the wind was blowing very hard, and it was like there was a storm coming. And in the middle of my front yard, where I have a... Um, Bird Bee and Butterfly Garden was this, in the dream, was this big glass box, a lot like the old foam boots they used to have in the US. And I remember thinking that, that, you know, here's this glass box, but what really was kind of shocking to me in the dream was what was inside this box. It was a big red spiky thing that was looked very menacing and was kind of wreathing around and, and seemed, you know, like it was trying to get out of the box. And I remember feeling very alarmed and thinking to myself, what is that? And as long as it doesn't get out of the box, I'm safe. And then I woke up and I thought that was, it was one of those dreams that was so vivid. And I knew it was a message. I knew it was some kind of warning because of the way it felt. Because often if I, if I don't know what a dream means by the symbols, I think about, well, how did the dream make me feel? And this dream made me feel like warning. And I pondered it for several days trying to understand what it meant. And I really just couldn't make any sense of it. So eventually I just forgot about it. And then one day, uh, several weeks ago, when I was sitting and reading something about the coronavirus, I'm looking at a picture of the virus, the red spiky Um, you know photograph of the of the virus and I suddenly the dream came rushing back to me and I realized that I had dreamt about this virus and now I know what it meant This is from the 731st contact from Monday, February 2020 at 9.58 p.m. And this is a uh, translated from the original German by Bruce Lula at um, beamdeingblogspot.com. And that's uh, beam, B-E-A-M, the letter 2, E-N-G, dot blog, blogspot.com. I highly encourage you to go over to Bruce's website and read his uh, translations. Um, He does uh, translations along with Marianne Erlinger, and maybe some other people are in on that too. I don't know. I just know primarily it's those two. and He has some great translations up there. So this is from his site. And I'm going to, uh, in the middle of the contact, where Pata is talking about the spread of the virus and the wearing of masks and it's uh so it starts at number 15 a spread of the rapidly spreading disease can occur within seconds i.e. after the moment of infection not when it becomes detectable and acute wearing protective masks against pathogens only makes sense if they are used sensibly but this cannot be the case if they are worn during the day on the street and in buildings instead of in crowds and in the near or close vicinity of people infected with the disease. On one hand, they are basically useless in this way without protective goggles, because even masks available in the public domain are only of any use if they are thick and tight enough to prevent the exhalation of breath and the spread of expiratory droplets. And if they cannot be absorbed, and inhaled by the outside world or other people. Ordinary face masks however are of no use in this respect because they are usually not suitable for a protective function against bacteria and viruses and normally only against dust sand and pollen and the like. The only appropriate masks are special filter masks and special medical masks. So Protective masks should be equipped for a specific purpose on the one hand, and on the other hand, they should only be used if an effective sense is connected with it. But if this does not correspond to a necessity and protective masks are worn nevertheless, then it is not only senseless, but also ridiculous and resembles a carnival fuss. Kind of a funny translation. So I'm going to continue, number 16. The incubation period or the time between contamination slash infection and the outbreak and acute development of coronavirus corresponds to the time between infection with the pathogen and the appearance of the first symptoms. The incubation period of this disease is insidious and cannot simply be set at 14 days as mistakenly claimed by unqualified medical professionals or virologists, etc., According to our initial research, clarifications, and findings, the incubation period can be up to one month and even up to three months, depending on the case, as well as from a few hours up to several days, which depends on the type and condition of the immune system. Number 17, our, our observations and findings also show that the second genetically modified coronavirus behaves very aggressively to fatally in the organism of the human being, depending on the corresponding immune state, but on the other hand, also restrainedly, whereby a recovery is formed, although this does not correspond to a complete destruction of the virus. Our findings show that certain genetic variants do not die off even during recovery, but remain latently present. But are also not immediately recognizable and cannot be detected, as is the case with various other diseases. In the case of this insidious coronavirus, however, it can be it can happen unexpectedly some years or even decades later, e.g., through intimate contact, that the latent dormant malady can be transmitted. But then unusual phenomena occurs in such a way that as a result of the altered genetic variations of the known virus, a disease reaction occurs in a completely different form. However, this fact cannot be grasped by terrestrial research with medical and virological apparatus and other technology because according to our predictions, the instruments required for this cannot be developed yet be developed and constructed in the current third millennium. Although the human beings of Earth think that a highly developed technology with very highly developed technical values is available to them, but what is the truth is that the entire earthly technology of any kind is no more than a first step out of the deep darkness into a faint glimmer of a still very distant light. Number 18, to conclude my remarks, it must be said that according to our investigations, there are completely inadequate laws on rapidly spreading diseases in all countries worldwide, as well as no decisive understanding of how and when an epidemic or pandemic must be effectively countered in order to prevent it. So in reading that, um, in the discussion of wearing of masks, there's also, it um, is discussed in several other contacts. All of these can be found on uh, Bruce's site, or you can also go to futureofmankind.uk.co. I think that's the correct address, and they also have translations of, uh, of these contact notes on there and the original German. And so, in my research and looking at this and trying to, to understand um, what is the effect of protection, when I did my research on the N ninety five masks, which were out of hard to find and out of stock, mysteriously in early February, when I was looking for them, even though. The coronavirus information wasn't a huge deal in this country yet. I was really surprised that they were so hard to find. And and in my research, um, I also noticed that the N95 um, filters out 95%, hence the name N95, of various bacteria, viruses, um, down to... microns yet the coronavirus is smaller than that it has a mean of 0.11 microns but I guess because of the type of filtering um, system it from what I understand it catches the virus within the filtering of the mask that's why the mask you know you have to be very careful with masks Um, once you use them they're contaminated you can there are ways to disinfect the mask one of them is to put it in your oven at 200 degrees for 30 minutes Don't put it on metal, put it on a piece of cardboard or something, and you can reuse the mask, I would think, a few times at least until it becomes so soiled or bent out of shape. Because that's the other problem is the mask needs to fit tightly. And so I was really concerned that that mask was even enough, even with goggles, which is something else that needs to be pointed out is that... um, the masks need to be worn with goggles because if you're in proximity of other people because the eyes are very uh, vulnerable to uh, bacteria, viruses. Um, and so if you're not protecting your eyes, um, the mask is not going to protect you. And if you're out in open space and there aren't people around, there's really no reason to wear a mask. But what really concerns me is now they've changed their tune and they're telling everyone to make their own masks and to wear them in areas where, and this is on the CDC's website, where um, social distancing is difficult. So there's no mention of goggles and there's no really standard. They're telling you wear bandanas, anything to cover your face. Well, that's not going to protect people from the virus. And if um, a homemade mask is produced, and then when I'm understanding from what I'm reading in the contact notes, it needs to be of a certain thickness and it needs to seal, you know, it needs to um, be so that it has the, like the N95s, they seal against your face and they, um, you know, have the little adjustable, um, you know, wire or metal piece that, that can clamp down against your nose. And so I would be very surprised if most of the homemade masks out there are able to fulfill those two criteria, that they're thick enough to filter uh, not only when you're exhaling um, to, to to capture it or to protect you from the the airborne or droplet um Contamination in the air when you're around other people. And even if they do work, because there's no mention of goggles wearing the, the goggles that seal against the face, then what are we really protecting ourselves? How are we really protecting ourselves? So, to, in my mind, um, at this point, the only way to truly protect yourself is to wear an N95 mask unless you know how to make a homemade mask. And those need to be tested, I would think. Um, And a pair of goggles that fit snug against the face if you have to be in close proximity of other people. So within a few uh, meters um, minimum. And that's without a breeze. And then um, if you have to, if you're... You know, out walking and there's no one around, or they're very far away, there's no reason to wear them. But they're saying, I think, that they want people to wear them all the time, no matter what, if they go out. And, uh, you know, so to me, it really, the only way to protect ourselves right now is to stay home if we don't have those things and stay out of the public. And then we're protecting ourselves and we're protecting. Um, other people because it isn't just us it's you know those healthcare workers that don't have the proper PPE protection and then there's the you know as as everyone's hearing about the people who are you know um, stocking our shelves and delivering our our food to different places and working in you know the meat packing plants those are starting to close down um, because there isn't the proper protection so I don't really see and because they're not really doing the testing, I don't really see how um, we aren't going to have a second wave, a significant second wave of this virus once they open things back up and there'll be a lot more deaths. So I'd be interested to hear from from you, those of you who are listening, your thoughts on the mask situation. Um, you know, you can leave me a voicemail, just go to the, the, my anchor homepage for uh, Reality Ranch podcast and there's a little button there that you can leave me a a voicemail voice message if you have some thoughts on this um, I would like to hear them I'm interested and um, if you want to know more about Billy Meyer and um, about Figu you can go to Figu.org when you go to that site there are different links that you can follow and you can look at um not only the english speaking sites the but the german and there's also some other languages on there because this is a worldwide movement um and you can find more information there about billy and about uh the player and of course we'll be talking more about this in future episodes My guest today is Daniel Cooper, a Figu passive member and author of his anticipated book tentatively titled The Outsiders, a book that details Daniel's thought processes to the realization of a framework that could bring the truth of who we are, why we're here, and where we come from to humanity. Daniel grew up in a sparsely populated area surrounded by nature far from any large cities, a place where the water was clean enough to drink and enough space to practice his musical instruments with no worries of intruding on others, a rare thing in a world that is increasingly overpopulated. Daniel was exposed to natural history and grew up around hunters, trappers, and experts in how to live in nature and was fortunate enough to be able to walk out the door and camp under the stars alone, unfettered by the need for Wi-Fi and other commonplace conveniences that are a part of the camping experience today. Growing up, Daniel naturally followed his interests studying the laws of nature through direct experience, also art, music, philosophy, psychology, and religion. Later, he developed an intense interest in film, digital graphics, model making, realistic painting, and science fiction. I've known Daniel since 2012. We've had a lot of great conversations, and I'm happy to be able to share one of these exchanges with you now. Daniel, if you could explain the book you're writing to people just briefly, how would you describe it?
1: Yeah, well, the book is a culmination of 14, well, actually seven years of work, and then seven years of um, letting it sit and waiting until the theory proved itself. Um, So uh, I had started this set of calculations, probability calculations, very simple, and uh, on the title for the moment, I have it as um, it's the kind of framework that anyone in their grandma's cat can figure out or understand. So So I had to keep it simple in my head. I'm not a great mathematician. So if you take the highest probability components and put them together and uh, you have a reduced set of contradictions, then um, that means that the probabilities are increasing. And uh, so if you take simple things like what you find in technological history that everyone knows about, about film, about digital graphics, about, you know, whatever. Um, and if you take things about political history, like, you know, the fact that we know that Switzerland is a political uh, politically neutral country and, and all that sort of thing you know, that's stuff that most people know about. And, um, and so, again, very simple, but when you put it all together, it really works well to point to the fact that um, this case, if an ET contact case existed um, and would come public, um, you know, it would have to come public in a specific year because of the way technology was developing so that it could spread and that it could be um, um, made in such a way that uh, it could be used, uh, the evidence could be made with uh, analog versus digital um, um, technology. Because analog you get a lot more from such as film photos and um, analog sound. Um, and so on and so forth. Whereas with digital, everything is completely limited in terms of what a scientist would be able then to uh, ascertain in terms of what's in that um, evidence. And so, for example, the tapes that Billy filmed, um, the sound tapes, um, have a much higher frequency. um, Just even with the basic recorder that he had at the time, um, a tape can record infinitely more frequencies than a than what you would ever find on a CD. so even if you took that tape and put it onto a CD, you would have way less frequencies to analyze as a scientist. Um, and so
0: okay, assuming someone doesn't know what you're talking about is concerning the tape, would you briefly explain what you're referring to?
1: Yeah, the sound tape that he made in terms of um, the uh, ufo sound i guess that he was um permitted to to tape as a part of the evidence and that was shipped off to um the sound engineer for stevie wonder and then he was really impressed with it and and another engineer as well and then uh he i guess then the team of scientists brought it to what was it the naval undersea laboratory or something where they had a sound bank of like 75 million known sounds or some crazy thing and was able to, um, they were able to analyze and ascertain all kinds of amazing things that you would not be able to duplicate in any form. Um, anyway, and so yeah, that would be okay. just that one thing. Film, same thing. Film photography, um, you have the same kind of thing. So if you take a film uh, negative. Um, you can keep scanning it with higher quality scanners over time as they increase in quality. But if you take a digital photograph at 1080p or um, you know, even higher, like 4K or something like that, well, then that's the maximum sharpness that you'll ever get out of it. So if you scan it, then um, a film photo or a film um, negative with higher um, quality scanners over time then the... Um, you still you have a much better um, chance of, of getting more information out of those um, than you would if it was just a digital photo. Also, there was no digital photography at the time, and there was no digital photoshopping at the time. So that really gave Billy an advantage um, because there would be no accusations then of um, photoshopping and so on um, to be made because that would be a 15 to 20 year technological gap that just couldn't be leaped. Um, You have George Lucas, which is how, what kind of put me onto this was George Lucas um, talking about his uh, 20-year anniversary um, redos of his old films from the 1970s and 80s. And these were the biggest budget films of all time up until then. And they... A bit, um, George Lucas explained very clearly what you could and could not do with film photography even with the biggest teams of the best experts and the biggest budgets and everything else behind them and um, and then in 1997 I think is when the first yeah so 1977 was the first um, original film and then in 1997 they brought out the special edition the first special edition film um, redo of of the first Star Wars movie with um where they went over it with digital effects and so um he was able then to fix all sorts of problems in terms of um when you put like a matte painting and then you have um things going over and so on like you have um overlays in especially light scenes where you see those black contour lines around the object you know that kind of thing Um, he could remove those and he could uh, finally just do all kinds of things that were just completely impossible Um, and so if you were smart as a contactor an ET coming to here to help bring something public and new about planetary evolutions and so on, you would take advantage of certain things um, so that you could avoid for the rest of time, any accusations of Photoshopping and digital this or that and and so on. So um, if this were a true case, then you would be able to find someone with very little expertise and um, basically have the ability then to make films and photos and so on Um, and uh, sound samples and give out metal samples and all sorts of things that would completely trump even the best-funded labs um, in the world for decades or centuries to come.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so so far that's proven the case, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course there are people who like to refute that, but it's sort of like watching people in Galileo's time wanting to refute his evidence and it just it was more for political or religious reasons than scientific. And so, yeah, that's just kind of what you're finding more and more. (laughs) And so now there's more um, evidence or more analysis, you know, um, very good scientific analysis that anyone can demonstrate for themselves um, and do on their own um, that's still being newly made available from you know, professors and this and that and uh, and so on and so forth. And so, that, yeah, it's just a great a great uh, opportunity for scientists to actually apply science. You know, it's it's one thing to just to say, oh, well, I build a model of this and therefore it's fake. You know, well, you can build models of air, aircraft and cars and stuff, too, and say it doesn't really prove that they're fake. So it's just kind of a nonsense argument. It's not scientific. So anyway so yeah um yeah so that's what i
0: was speaking of when i said um that no one's been able to refute it so far i mean based on scientific methods
1: Mm -hmm. exactly
0: not just speculation uh knee-jerk reactions Mm -hmm. uh prejudice like you were saying
1: yeah Uh, the nice thing too about film photography is that it doesn't look as impressive to our naked eye as digital photography or digital graphics you know that we're so used to and Hollywood films and all that stuff and the advantage to that actually is that um, it gives people an out if they can't um, accept it fundamentally in terms of their beliefs and all that sort of thing and so it kind of prevents people from completely going insane if they're completely forced then to acknowledge that this is true and throw away their whole beliefs yeah
0: Really, because isn't that you know what I've come to realize is um, those who are ready are the ones that really really dig and analyze it.
1: <laughs> it just so happens yeah. to be you look at the whole list of actual top tier scientists that look into this in JPL, NASA, IBM, you know the university labs, and you know all the different um, like the Undersea Laboratory and all these other whatever. And it just so happens that they were the ones that supported the case, and the ones that didn't support the case didn't look at the analysis, didn't look at the evidence. (laughs) And so, and usually they were the ones that didn't support it, usually had other motives, um, religious or political. Whereas the scientists, the actual scientists that did scientific analysis, you know, properly, thoroughly, um, they were the ones that supported it. And so it's just...
0: And I would venture to guess, wouldn't you, that um, there are scientists out there who have looked at this case privately, on you know, kind of under mm-hmm. cover, and come to the realization that this is real, mm-hmm. but they're not saying anything about it.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because it's of the
0: ramifications, of... they don't want to be delegated, relegated to the fringe society, because that's yeah. what would happen.
1: Well, the whole UFO thing is marginalized on purpose by the mainstream so that real scientists will avoid it, if possible, and journalists and so on. Because it's just too destabilizing politically and religiously and all this stuff for, you know, all those big power lobbies and whatever around the world and so on. So, you can see you know, um, what happens to people like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden when they destabilize those Or attempt to destabilize those uh, those people you know they end up either killed or exiled or or whatever and so
0: yeah
1: Yeah. but the UFO thing is kind of a nice protection against that too because you know it lets the people who are actually doing the the contactee work and you know Billy for example um, it just kind of lets them off the hook in a sense you know and then in the future actually it's a very good thing because you know eventually we're gonna have this technology and it's just gonna reinforce more the case than anything else, yes. you know. We're going to take all that kind of stuff as, you know, for granted, like we do cars today and airplanes. Mm-hmm. So there's no way that we're going to be stuck with this technology that we have now forever. You know, it's just right. ridiculous to assume that. And yeah. Of course, we're going to move on. <clears throat> so, yeah. Oh, and, tell uh, me
0: um, what when you were young and you started. Thinking about this, do you remember your earliest memory of contemplating the fact that the possibility of extraterrestrial life and being and, and them contacting or coming to our planet?
1: Yeah. Um, well, through various experiences, um, I guess one of the first more relatable ones for others would be um, a UFO conference that I went to when I was 11. I had thought about it before that, but, um, I went to this UFO conference where there was, you know, Stanton Friedman and all these other UFO experts, mm-hmm. so, uh, quote unquote. <coughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the, it was like an 11 hour show basically. Right. And, um, where they had all these different speakers talking about this and that. And, uh, you know, it was intriguing, but I just kept noticing that there was one thing all throughout the entire, every single one of those presentations was that there was not a sh- single shred of evidence or proof. And though the stories were interesting and, yeah, intriguing, and dare I say might even be possible, like there's certainly nothing, you know. Uh maybe even likely, but you know, a lot of these people ended up seemingly it just seemed like the whole thing was just a a bunch of baloney in a way that, in such a way that a scientist, a real scientist would never look at it. And so...
0: Did any of them provide any photographs?
1: I don't remember seeing any photographs. No. it
0: was all just stories?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, It was all just stories. And so... There was not a single shred of anything that I found. And um, anyway, and so it was, it just had me thinking, you know, like, well, a lot of these UFO groups, you know, I, I knew there was one in Canada that they had a website where you could report UFO thing, you know, sightings or whatever, and it was government funded. And a lot of these government websites exist around the world where, you know, they're government funded. And it's like, why the hell would they fund something like that? You know, if it's so fringe and pointless and whatever, and um, yeah, it turned out that uh, it seems like, anyways, that uh, governments are looking for how the public reacts to these sightings, and a lot of these sightings are actually made of government craft, <laughs> right. and so most of them apparently, allegedly, anyways, and so, um, and so, it's it's just interesting. Um, I just started thinking, you know, what, if any contacts would happen, what would they do? What? How would they approach us as a planet, as a whole? Because, hey, you know, you have to take everybody into consideration, not just the scientists. You have to take all the tribes and the the religious groups and the political groups and everybody into consideration, which is huge. Um, And so how do you do that? And what kind of information would you want to make public so that people on this world, before they blast off out into space and start interacting potentially with other groups or people or whatever you want to call them, out in the universe um what should we work on here (laughs) and um you know obviously our social um problems are absolutely massive and we're completely destroying this planet and each other and don't care much about anything anymore and so
0: it's really hard to watch
1: it's horrible yeah Yeah, Yeah. and so how do you deal with that and uh yeah so I started coming up with this framework, and um figuring you know the best year and country for these contacts to come public would be, you know, um, eventually, my conclusion became Switzerland because Switzerland is politically neutral. it hasn't had a single war invasion in or out in over two hundred and four years, uh, I think since Napoleon, and um it has. Extremely high amounts of um, support for engineering and science. They have the biggest uh, physics research machine or lab in the world there. Um, it was funded in part by the Swiss, uh, the Hadron Collider. And uh, mm-hmm. Einstein spent a lot of his life there, uh, many of the greatest minds, Carl Jung, and on and on and on, right. and uh, in many different fields. Um, Their country is small and what happens when you have a small country like that is that you can't just dig oil out of the ground and sell it. You have to have some other kind of economic advantage, um, some other kind of engine to make it economically um, competitive in the world. And so that comes from supporting high education, making it available as much as possible so that you have a lot more engineers, um, mathematicians and so on um, at your disposal. And so, um, that is a very big part of, um, a very, very big advantage to, to Switzerland as well.
0: Right. And isn't part of it also the geographically, as far as safety, um, where the center ended up being placed?
1: The actual center. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Switzerland itself, itself can still very much easily be, um, affected by, um, a Third World War, or sorry, Fourth World War. <laughs> oh, I meant natural
0: disasters, actually. Oh, that too. Disasters,
1: yeah. yeah, well, I mean, they do have the Alps, and there's a lot of villages up in the Alps. Um, of course, they're gonna have a lot of issues with landslides and um, avalanche stuff and so on as the climate continues to change and so on. So there's dangers everywhere, but um the Northern hemisphere is well positioned or better positioned, I guess, in some aspects than the Southern hemisphere. Um, and that was actually the first criteria that I started looking for is what it'd be in the Southern hemisphere or the Northern hemisphere, because the Southern hemisphere you find is completely in turmoil. <laughs> so you have Africa, you have South America um, and, um, and then you have um, other uh, countries. Uh, the other country would be, um, Australia would be another option, perhaps, but it doesn't have the advantage of um, the long-standing peace, the economic stability, doesn't have the extreme science-rich culture. They depend mostly on natural resources, um, sales to other countries such as China and so forth, and um, they don't have um, the ability to keep the world criminals on a tight leash financially which Switzerland does, which is also a nice advantage. So so criminals can see that they can hide their welfare. And if they decide to push Switzerland around, guess what happens? Hey. (laughs) So yeah, so there's a lot of incredible advantages and each one of them, there's not a single country in the world that can compete with. And so, but then you put them all together and it just becomes the most unbeatable choice. And so um, they have a democracy where you vote on issues four times a year where the Swiss citizens get to choose those issues and it essentially cuts out the middleman. And those, those votes, those referendums are legally binding. So Canada, for example, has not had such a referendum in over 25 years. Um, we get to choose some idiot who lies to us before the election and then who ignores us after the election. And it just continues well, that's, like that forever. <laughs> yeah,
0: and that's exactly the way it is in the U.S.,
1: yeah and in most democracies yes so
0: in canada um do you have the political divisiveness that is present in the u.s
1: it's starting to yeah it's well it's been not as bad but it's getting there yeah Yeah, you see a lot of it
0: wondered about that
1: yeah i haven't really
0: looked into it and uh was was wondering you know we have this polarization between the democrats and the republicans in our country and so do you have two parties or yeah more than two parties like well we have,
1: we have we have more than two but there's only two that really ever get elected you know
0: yeah and that's the same here
1: the yes. conservatives are like the republicans and then the liberals are like the
0: so they just call them by a different name
1: yeah exactly yeah same game and...
0: different country
1: yeah exactly exactly and so it's kind of absurd to call so them do you
0: democracy. see the, the media as 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 is the case in the United States, do you see that the media is playing a big part in that polarization?
1: Oh, huge. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. They are extremely disinterested in challenging anything that isn't politically um, to their interest or to the interest of big corporations or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's Yeah, it's a bit silly, to say the least. (laughs) And uh, yeah, you look at the Swiss system, and when you can vote on actual issues every year and um, that you get to choose, there's only 100,000 signatures required uh, before an issue gets put on the table. And um, yeah, four times a year they get to do that. And so that's a pretty wonderful system and it's not like the country isn't functioning it's the best kind of functioning country in all right. of europe and probably in the world um and so all the men um you know have to join um the army for at least a year i think and uh get real training and so on so their their sense of their individual sense of 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 individual responsibility in their culture is just so much more than anywhere else I've seen, even in Europe. And I'm just blown away by it. It's quite amazing. And, uh, and so, you know, you can talk to the average citizen there and they know all about the financial systems around the world and all this kind of stuff. And they know a lot about, you know, what's going on in the world. They're very, very um, savvy in terms of just general education, and their social stu- their social structures are, are extremely um, well set up as well. For like I was saying before, free education, post secondary as well, um, as well as healthcare and all that other stuff. So it's a extremely functioning, well functioning country,
0: Yeah, it's very enjoyable. stable.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It it's is. a good model. It's a good model, and it's likely to continue its stability, its path towards stability for for a long time, which is a great thing if you're going to have this kind of contacts taking place. Um, I mean, you can't have contacts like this taking place in a country where you're not allowed to speak about anything politically and religiously or anything like that. You know, that's just nonsensical. Um, and so it's just, you need that stability. You need that, uh, that, that stability and that support from the country as a whole for it to function, and uh, especially long term. So yeah, um lots of lots of stuff. Um this only touches a little bit on some of the subjects, but uh yeah.
0: Yeah. So um would you would you mind reading something from your book?
1: Yeah, a- I guess book? I could do that. What uh what subject?
0: That's, that is up to you. I'll
1: just leave it. <laughs> you. So, you know all right. I'll skip some of the stuff we just talked about how about that yes Um, let's see here
0: when do you think you are gonna be publishing
1: I don't know yet Um, hopefully this year sometime yeah okay Well, it's the first chapter kind of goes into more the the why Switzerland and then the next chapters goes into some of the stuff in terms of computers and then the advantage of the Internet, which came out not uh, not long after the personal computer um, came on the market, um, you know, within a few years. And um, that also gave it huge advantages in terms of um, being able to spread beyond the reach of governments and power groups. And we're still seeing that today with government or with uh, organizations like WikiLeaks and and so on. So they're causing huge disruptions um, to the major power influencers in the world. And obviously, they're not happy about it. But (laughs) I think the way the Internet is designed kind of sticks a nail in their coffin. Yes. uh,
0: Well, unfortunately, because they know that a lot of the truth is coming out. They, they've, as we've seen, they put a lot of disinformation out there to confuse people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they exactly. take
0: truth and they mix it with lies, and then people become very confused. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for many people to even wade through it all and figure out what's true and what isn't.
1: Yeah. Well, that's exactly why, you know, contact like this is useful because it gives us the ability to, again, get information that isn't. Um, motivated by materialism, religion, politics, or anything, um, military, and so on. Yeah, you know, influenced in that Throw
0: sense. Over the people.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just there's the just, opposite. <laughs> yeah, there's no motive for that. And uh, it's just nice. So that's actually the essential reason why I made the, this framework. So that, uh, yeah, I would be able to find and then test this set of um, this case. Um, I didn't know that this case necessarily existed. It's just I was making a framework for any ET contact, you know, that sort of thing. So I didn't know about it by name and um, had to start somewhere. So
0: (laughs) before you start reading, can you tell me how you actually found the case?
1: Yeah, um, I have an uncle. um, He's an an electrical engineer and uh, he I guess we were just talking on the phone and for the first time i guess the subject of ufo's came out and then um How came are out. you? uh 23 okay yeah this was, was in december 2008 and um anyway and so um yeah he told me about it and he said yeah this is definitely the most impressive ufo case i've ever seen he said he saw a documentary about it and i think he said 1979 or something and um, he said it's by far the most impressive UFO case he'd ever seen. And I asked him, okay, well, where is it? And, you know, and when did you see this? And he said, oh, it was in Switzerland, 1979 or something. And that really perked my ears up because Switzerland, 1975 is what my calculation was. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. So actually, I might actually look into this case because if somebody had told me there was a case in the States, you know, in 1995, I would have said, forget it, I'm not looking at it. I already had this framework already right. set up. So it just really cut all of that baloney off. And,
0: uh, and kind what of I, itself, w- I would think.
1: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was uh three years of my life lost after that, just reading and gobbling up as much you information know, I, as I could. after.
0: I find it interesting that a lot of people found this in 2008 because I did also.
1: Yeah. September
0: yeah. 2008. And I, can't remember the exact day, but I will never forget that it was in September of 2008. And I was the same way, (laughs) two to three years of my life after that. Luckily, I had just sold my business. So I had the luxury (laughs) of just researching and vetting everything I was finding and thinking about it. And I spent hours and hours on the computer.
1: Yeah, me too. uh,
0: Looking at, yes. And more and more just thought to myself, this looks like the real thing to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Finally found it. Yeah. <laughs> After yes. I and I how- made I f- I finished the framework when I was 15 and then it was another 7 years before I would find the actual case and test my theories for the first time. So right. it was a big moment. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you know it's
0: fu- it's funny because um though and we've talked about this before but um I, though I didn't actually have this you know how you had this solid um framework that you built. Uh, this idea that you put together, I just mine was more vague, and it was. I know that I'm supposed to find hold something on. Hold important. On. Sorry,
1: oh, I've, I've got a I've okay, honey. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm on Skype right now. We're recording the call. <laughs> Sorry, no worries. Another BBC moment there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I just, you know, I had these ideas in my mind about the truth and that extraterrestrials were, were uh, involved somehow. I just it made sense to me. There, you know, that someone, someone more evolved, intellectually and spiritually, and you know, materially
1: it would prevent um, us from blowing ourselves up. First of all.
0: Yeah. Right. And and that. That I, you know, I just that, that urge inside me to find, to find something. There was something I felt a purpose mm-hmm. that I had, but I, I, it just became more and more louder and louder to where I really felt like I was running out of time. And, and in a way that was true because unlike you at 20, you were 23, I was 48. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So I was. Saying to myself, uh 47, I guess it was 47. I was saying to myself, that you know, I really feel this urgency, and I would tell my husband that I feel this urgency that I'm supposed to find something, and I i know I'll I'll know it when I finally do. And I went down a lot of different, you know, as you did, like going to the UFO conference, dead ends.
1: Yeah.
0: It turned out to be not it. And I noticed mm-hmm. that once I found the case, and after a couple of years of vetting it and, and uh, thinking about it and researching it, that urgency went away.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I knew oh. that I had, and that was nice, that that finally went. And I noticed it one day. I went, oh, that's gone.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. You know? Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, I think that's, that's significant.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I guess I had a similar feeling in the mm-hmm. sense that there was urgency, but yes. by that time i had already given up looking for it. So go yeah. figure,
0: you know, Funny because when I made the, when,
1: was... I, when I made the calculations, there was no Internet and I didn't right. read books. I didn't like reading. Um, all of my stuff was just based on, like I say, the most simple, easy to understand and fine facts that I could. And uh, yeah, anyone in their grandma's cat can figure out. Yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah, I
0: did read. I liked science fiction quite a bit. And mm. it, I would kept reading all this science fiction and I would see just little grains of truth that I knew I thought this makes sense. This is logical,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and there are a lot of what ifs, if things could be a certain way of, you know, and I always, um, I always kind of rejected aliens as monsters, you know, as far as not being human. And so when I found that they are human, um, that makes that, that's, yeah, that makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, uh, of course. It's, it's all part of a, it's all part of the dif- disinformation campaign, all that, uh, yeah. Yes. Fear driven and ridicule driven movies. It's all about either fear or ridicule. That's yeah. all the alien movies that you can find is just yeah. nonsense. So yes. that's why. Except, you know,
0: there was a few in the early, like, um, uh, oh, it's the my, Steven Spielberg made it. Uh,
1: Close Encounters.
0: Yes. Close Encounters. Oh, the third kind. The third yeah. kind. That was closer, I think, to. Yeah. I saw that, and that was closer to, to real being realistic.
1: Yeah, I saw that when I was yeah. 10, mm-hmm. so that, that was actually a nice little kind of primer in some ways. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's certainly off in many respects, but that's okay. Yeah. You know. So back
0: to your... Better. Did you find something in your book you'd like to read?
1: Well, I could... Uh, Go into the key preparations that could only be done before 1975.
0: Yeah, yeah, why not?
1: Yeah. Okay. So what happened before 1975 is just as important as the part about timing of computers and the internet. The contactee would have already been very well versed in world religions. Would have to be uh, well versed in world religions, philosophies, and world politics, history, as well as ideological contradictions and problems that contribute most today to our confusions and world problems. And this would have to be done before taking the contacts public, so before 1975. This person naturally would have to have traveled around the Middle East and North Africa, where many of the greatest world problems and frictions are centered and where many of the religions were founded, meeting spiritual and political leaders before a time when it was no longer easy or safe to do so. 1960s was a perfect time to travel through these places on foot and there are many books and documentations by european travelers at that time who mentioned this fact since it was a very popular tour to make at that time at least for men this is no longer the case today it was also possible back then to travel with a gun for his own protection which would be impossible today um An older older German friend of mine, along with many people he knew, also made such travels in the 1960s, and note these same things. These countries were very much less volatile, dangerous, or difficult to travel through than they are today. Today, this would be far, far more dangerous to attempt. As it it happens, these contacts go into great detail about his travels through the Middle East and North Africa, where he met spiritual leaders as well as political figures that would shape world politics, such as Indira Gandhi, Selassie, Saddam Hussein, Farouk, and so forth. There, he would spend a great deal of time in ashrams and so forth learning great detail about various world religions, history, and consciousness-related matters. The fact that vehicular transport had also recently been made made available by the 1960s in such places made it easier to travel around, providing certain advantages uh, advantages that were not so widely available even decades before. Um, Yeah, and so, let me see here... Also important to note here is the fact that the preparation and education that the contactee would need before taking contacts public would take full advantage of the rise of the greatest economic boom in the history of mankind, which started around the end of the Second World War. economic boom which will end in my lifetime. This boom would provide a lot more resources and stability to get this case off the ground and to get Figu established than would have been possible before or after. He was also born in 1937 with the contacts beginning in 1942, which missed the world, the the worst of the Great Depression in the 1930s, there very likely won't be such a boom in world history, or the world economy, for a very long time uh, to come. Oil already peaked in the 1970s, and the world's easily accessible resources have largely already been mined, extracted, polluted, or used up, especially with the human population increase now uh, being more than 1 billion every decade after the death rate approximately the equivalent of 125 125 new york York cities per decade after death rate (laughs) all of which increases pollution and decrease decreases arable land clean water healthy ecosystems and ultimately the economy and overall affordability and quality of life this to me demonstrates at the very least an impeccable sense of timing to start the contacts in 1942 and establish figu in 1975 and come public after he had been well educated in various world matters um, do, 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 do. what else
0: um, i think that's pretty probably yeah,
1: good it just goes on um, and on and a on good
0: idea of, yeah um, <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be a a good book for people to to pique people's interest about this i hope
1: so i mean in some ways i hope so <laughs> it's not it's not a fun subject to bring public in a world like this. No um, because know that. <laughs> yeah, because it's yeah, it's just kind of not popular. Um yeah. So but, you know, it's something that just has to be talked about and has to be you know, I don't think there's much choice if we're gonna really move ahead as a civilization. Oh. And uh so yeah. It's just kind
0: well, of well I think is. this information helps balance all of the superficial uh ways of living that, that we're experiencing in the world now. And uh, mm-hmm. I think this information needs to be out there more. That's why I started this podcast. hmm To help kind of balance, um, because I, I see a lot of things out there, or I listen to excerpts of different shows, and they have some truth about them, and then they go down some other path of things that aren't even accurate. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. So
0: it's it's ah uh, it's my hope we can put this information out there mm. in in a in a in a way that you know isn't mixed with a bunch of nonsense.
1: Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I go to in go into into um, the method of this how it made it because basically what it does is it looks at the macrocosm information instead of just the microcosm. So when you build a house, you start with the big mainframe and then you move into the little details. So this is kind of what this does because when you start only with the little details, the problem is, is that you end up with pockets of contradicting information here and there. And that's when you get countries, religions and all this different stuff kind of butting heads with each other. Whereas when you look at the macrocosm information first, um, it kind of transcends all the boundaries. And so that's kind of what the aim is here. um, And that I think is one of the most important things we can do as a planetary um, society. Um, Not to say that we don't need countries and so on, but um, they do serve that purpose for sure. Um, However, we do need to uh, start taking care of each other more and finding reasons why we should and taking care of ourselves and so on. And so, yeah. I mean, I go into all kinds of other things in this book, too, not just the country, and lo- uh, the country and the year that came public, but also other information that I would likely find in spirituality and all kinds of other things. So, um, yeah, so it's uh, well, very look, interesting.
0: I look forward to um, the book being published and in a future program, maybe we can talk about it once it's out yeah sure and, and, you know get the word out there for you so that people know it's available and where they can get it and, mm-hmm. and what yeah. your final title is and you know I know that's all kind of still evolving
1: yes it is yeah, yeah. and so um, yeah I'm uh, working on it with uh, Christian Frenner at, uh, in Switzerland there he's um, offered to help with the editing uh, which is very helpful because I'm not a writer and I never intended to write anything in my life. Like I said, I did not enjoy books when I was a kid. I did not read books. I hated books and uh, it showed. I failed most of my English classes and um, <clears throat> I just was not a very um, astute um, memorizer of things. Right. So now <laughs>
0: ironically, more... here you are writing a book.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> about history and technology and yeah. everything else. Yeah, things that you... But, yes it's all synthesis subjects it's not um it's not just an an analyzing um dates and stuff it's actually synthesizing information that we already know and um yeah so that's that was always my strength (laughs) what's that
0: well i was just nothing i was just gonna say well thank you for for um talking with me about this today and um
1: welcome thanks for having me yeah
0: no problem (laughs) (laughs) Until next week, um, I'm going to say stay safe. Please take care of yourselves and use your own common sense when it comes to protecting yourself from this virus. And next week, we will be talk- I will be talking to Patrick McKnight about the- his Creational Truth uh, group and website. Um, I think he's the, uh, the facilitator for that um, particular site. And um, I'm looking forward to that conversation and sharing it with you. So until then, have a great week.